0: Alright you guys, welcome to another episode of True American, this is Alex, this is going to be a solo episode because Erica is busy writing an article right now, but today's episode is going to be all about, you know it, coronavirus and the lockdown and all this nonsense that we've been going through now for literally a month, so... Let's just cut right into it. Since Erica's not gonna be with me on this episode, I'm actually gonna open up with something that she wrote for EV Magazine, and it's gonna set the tone for this entire episode. So here we go. She wrote this article on March 23rd, okay? So we're looking back like one week after we went into lockdown, and the title of this article is called, The Coronavirus Quarantine Will Destroy the Economy and Many More Lives Than the Disease Itself. On January 31st, the president declared a public health emergency requiring the quarantine of anyone traveling from certain regions of China. Over the next month, it became clear that these measures had not been sufficient to prevent the spread of the virus to the United States. Next came more stringent travel restrictions, including the cancellation of all travel to and from Europe as the virus spread rapidly through the EU. Then, on March 20th, California became the first state to take a radical step against the spread requiring all non-essential businesses to close and limiting travel for citizens to only certain activities. California was soon followed by 11 other states, including New York and Illinois. At first, you might think, how courageous of these governors to take decisive action against this dangerous disease. Think of all the lives they'll save. But think again. About one in three Americans are now effectively forbidden from leaving their homes except for certain government-sanctioned activities so far. We'll ignore the clear violation of constitutional rights for now and simply discuss what the consequences of these, quote, decisive actions will be. Are these governors going to be remembered as heroes who saved the country from a deadly contagion, or more likely as foolhardy buffoons who plunged the nation into an avoidable depression and ruined millions of lives over a desire to appear that they had taken action in a time of crisis? It started with the stock market. In the middle of February, the stock market began to plunge. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P 500, and the NASDAQ have all declined nearly 30%, making this the fastest onset of a bear market in history. The Federal Reserve has tried and failed to offset the disaster, leading some experts to call for suspending trade completely until after the crisis has passed. We already know how destructive a stock market crash can be. We just experienced the largest recession since the Great Depression in 2007, and the stock market had finally started to recover, with the lowest unemployment numbers in 50 years and record stock highs. But now, we seem to have lost a decade's worth of gains in less than a month. For most young people who do not have a lot of money invested in the stock market, the crash may not seem like such a calamity, but the effects of a truly devastating crash will touch the lives of every American, whether or not they are an investor. The most immediate effects will be felt by older Americans who are nearing or are of retirement age. Most retirees have a 401k or other pension plan that has been grown by investing in the stock market over many decades. But what happens when the market shrinks by 30%? That can mean millions of retirees who lose thousands, if not millions, of dollars from their retirement income. We can all be focused on the danger of exposing our elders to a virus that seems to target the old and infirm, but what life are we leaving for them if they survive the virus only to be left destitute after their stock investments are wiped out? Social Security has never had sufficient funds to cover a comfortable retirement for an average American. In fact, the benefits are so little that any financial investor worth their salt would advise you to act as if you won't receive them when planning for your retirement. We cannot sacrifice the long-term well-being of an entire generation just to keep a short-term crisis at bay. They may survive the virus, but living out the rest of their life in poverty off the pennies handed out by Social Security may be a fate worse than any virus can threaten. Catastrophic Unemployment What about the emotional strain of losing one's job or savings or home? As of March 19th, the Bureau of Labor Labor estimated that about 700,000 Americans may have already been laid off from their jobs. There's no evidence that the trend is slowing, which means that millions of Americans could soon have no job to return to once the quarantines are over. And by the way, guys, this article shows a crazy chart on here from the Department of Labor, and it shows the um, unemployment claims nationwide. And it literally comes right up to 2020, and you just see a vertical spike, which is crazy. Okay, back to the article now. Americans can't count on the state to, quote, have their backs. It can take months for the government to approve unemployment benefit applications, and more than two-thirds of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. They don't have the recommended three months of expenses saved up to tide them over until they can start receiving benefits. Some states have tried to offset this by forbidding landlords from evicting tenants who can't pay and by keeping customers connected to utilities even when they can't pay. But those are not sustainable solutions, even for a handful of months. Landlords also need income and infrastructure costs money whether we like it or not. Even if people do have savings, they are now being forced to drain their funds to cover an emergency they didn't create. Instead of being able to pay off student loans or put a down payment on a house, They're paying for the government's quarantine out of their own hard-won earnings. If we enter a depression, who knows how long we could remain unemployed. By the way, it can destroy our mental health too. The Fed estimates that up to 30% of Americans could find themselves unemployed in the second quarter of the year. That's obviously devastating for financial reasons, but it can be devastating for our mental health as well. First you have the short-term effects on depression of being stuck inside during the quarantine. As someone who has struggled with depression, I can guarantee that the worst place to be during a difficult time is stuck in your house with no outlets and little contact with other people. Add that to the crippling fear of losing your job and possibly home or other assets. Tragically, researchers believe that up to 10,000 suicides between 2008 and 2010 can be linked to the economic recession in Canada, the US, and Europe. Are we willing to sacrifice another 10,000 people to suicide over fear, doubt, and isolation? Depression may not always lead to suicide, but it can also lead people to self-destructive behavior. No wonder we see the highest amount of substance abuse in America in regions with the highest unemployment. We are already experiencing a devastating opioid crisis in America, which may worsen as more people find themselves unemployed and suffering from the mental instability associated with long-term fear and stress. What about domestic abuse and financial instability? Another and equally tragic consequence of unemployment and substance abuse is often domestic abuse. During the quarantine, thousands of victims may be trapped inside with abusers whose anger is exacerbated by unemployment or increased substance abuse to cope with the situation. The nonprofit Violence Policy Center estimates that an average of 1,000 women per year are killed by intimate partners, usually as a result of domestic violence. Children living in those households are also at risk of both physical abuse and the emotional trauma of living around so much violent behavior. Given that economic downturns can increase the incidence of domestic violence, we should include the women and children who could become victims when considering the far-reaching consequences of a market crash. This all brings us to the question. Is the cure worse than the disease? Worst case estimates from the CDC put the possible U.S. death toll for coronavirus between 200,000 and 1.7 million people. It's important to remember when looking at those numbers that they are higher than even the current number of all infected people sick and recovered over the entire planet right now. These numbers are also based on no quarantine or preventative measures, so the likely casualty rate will be much, much lower. But even these two weeks of stagnated economic activity have seen catastrophic effects on many more citizens than can possibly be killed by the virus. Yes, it's important to reduce the spread of the virus and keep away from vulnerable groups like the elderly or the immunocompromised to protect them from the illness. But what about the rest of us? It's hard to estimate what percentage of the population could become infected and out of how many might need to be hospitalized, and then an even smaller number who could become fatal cases. But the consequences of the economic downturn created by these mandatory quarantines are guaranteed to affect every single American living today. Elderly people who survive the virus may live only to see their retirement savings lost. They'll die in poverty. Younger families who are trying to pay down student loans or save for a house may be financially crippled for years by unemployment or lower wages. Small business owners could lose companies they've spent their entire lives to build. Sure, the big corporations may get a bailout and survive the crisis as they have in the past, but dozens of large companies cannot provide enough employment for the millions of American workers out there. We need small businesses to keep our economy afloat. We need Americans with savings, with families, and with a hope for the future." The president on Monday called for quarantines to end quickly, pushing, quote, 15 days to slow the spread. His administration knows that there's nothing the government can do to cover up a rapidly shrinking US economy, Whatever the risk of contracting the virus, it is nothing compared to the certainty of misery created by a massive recession. If it means Americans must brave the unknown, then we are up to the task. But we can't stay inside forever waiting for a monster that may never come. So I really like this article that Erica wrote. I think it sums up the most uh, reasonable approach to this discussion that a person can really have, which is that the issue we're facing today, the real danger is being is is the economic downturn that is being created and it's not being created by the disease which I think is an important point that she brings up the disease itself has would not on its own have caused the kind of economic downturn that we're seeing right now it's the fact that we've introduced these crazy draconian measures in order to combat a disease based on the assumption that the disease is going to be far outside of the norm when it comes to infectious flu-like viruses. And at the end of the day, none of the data backs that up. The only thing you hear people citing are models, as Erica pointed out in her article, which greatly over-anticipate the deadliness of the virus. They estimate 200,000 to 1.7 million deaths. Can you find a disease, period, that led to 200,000 to 1.7 million? million deaths with symptoms that are just like the flu and with an infection uh, term just like the flu among a population that is generally healthy and young and in good health without any sort of prior medical conditions? The answer is that you can't. And everything we're seeing right now with the disease is backing that up. The only people who are suffering fatally from this disease are people who are already in at-risk groups for the common flu, or they're people who have underlying medical conditions or some sort of immunocompromised uh, health condition. And by the way, I'm not saying that those people deserve to die. Those people deserve to get medical help, and they should get the medical help. But as Erica said in her article, it doesn't mean that everyone else in the world needs to go to a standstill in order to to fight the virus. Just today, the, uh, the Cal- one of the California health representatives came out and they said, oh, well, when they were asked, when can we go back to life as normal? And this idiot said, well, we can go back to life as normal when the number of new cases in California falls below 10. Now, just try and think about that. We have millions of people living in California. And all those people are supposed to put their lives on hold until the day comes when the number of new cases for this pretty much minor disease falls below 10 new cases. So consider this article by Dr. John Lee in The Spectator, published on March 28, 2020, called How Deadly is the Coronavirus? It's still far from clear. There is room for different interpretations of the data. One of the things this doctor points out, which you may not know, although it's starting to come to light now, weeks after this article was published, is that there is a list of diseases which the medical profession keeps. And these are diseases that are very rare or very deadly. So, for example, that would be like smallpox or it could be various forms of cancer, for example, and that list of diseases is something where if a person is in the hospital and they test positive for that disease, then if they die, that disease is recorded as the official cause of death. So, COVID-19 was added to this list. And that means as you're finding out in America now because it's it's starting to be published uh, in the mainstream media is that People who die in the hospital for any kind of respiratory illness right now are being labeled as victims of COVID-19, which means that when a doctor or a medical professional comes out with the state of California and says, well, we're going to have to wait until the number of new cases is uh, below 10, well, they're messing around with the numbers. Anyone who, who goes into the hospital with respiratory illnesses right now is being tacked on to the COVID-19 list, and then if they if they die and they tested positive, even if they die for a completely unrelated reason, it's being marked down as a COVID-19 death, which means that right now your state governments, especially California, and I assume New York as well, are the people who get to tell you the rules of the game, change the rules of the game when they want, and they get to look at all the cards in your hand at the same time. So who's to say when we're going to fall below 10 new cases per day? It's an absurdly small number. When you consider that the flu, uh, as we discussed in the last True American episode, the flu infects, uh, what was it, Um, 450,000 or something like that, people per year. Okay, well, this coronavirus has probably infected about that many. We have no idea because it was going around for a long time without any kind of test that could detect it. So... Now we're in this weird holding phase where there's probably a ton of people who aren't sick, passed the disease, had no problem at all, and could just go back to work and live life normally with no danger to themselves or other people of contracting this virus. But if they go in for a test, it's going to show antibodies in their blood for the disease and they're going to test positive for coronavirus and that's going to get added as a new case. It's absolutely ridiculous and backwards. So you really can't trust most of the uh, government announcements that are coming out right now about the status of the spread of the disease. This is something that we aren't going to have meaningful data on until we're far removed from it and we can look back and start to sort through the people who were labeled as COVID-19 victims when really they just had the flu or a cold or some other random respiratory issue or a cough, who knows what. We're not going to know it in the moment. And what's ridiculous is that we've signed away so many of our rights based on policies that are built off of bad assumptions and faulty data that we can't trust in the first place. But let's settle that aside. And I want to talk about this economic thing. okay? And I want to talk about the major problem that's going on in our country right now. Uh, at least from a layman's perspective. The major problem we have in our country is that we have a ton of stupid people. And I've told Erica, and I think we may have said it on the True American podcast before, but for those of us who are in our 20s, this is the first chance we're really getting to look around and see just how many stupid people we live with and interact with. Because anyone out there right now who is a, a... young 20-something, college-educated person who is saying, oh my God, we have to do our part. We have to stay at home and prevent people from getting the virus. This is our World War II moment. They're an idiot. That's a stupid person right there. Chalk it up on the wall. Yeah, that person, a complete moron, okay? But the source of this stupidity is really a, it's a product of two kinds of stupid. And these relate to the article that Erica wrote. The first is that as much as people that you know want to pretend like they really understand how disease and medical science works, for the most part, they don't. Even people that are doctors are off base on this stuff. We'll come back around to that. Let's just talk generally. We're talking about a disease where it's born on the air. When you inhale and exhale, you're spreading it. If someone touches their nose, touches their eye, touches their mouth, sneeze, touches a a doorknob or a railing or a wall or something in the grocery store, and then you come along, you touch it, you're going to get this disease, okay? This notion that if you stay six feet away from everyone, you're going to avoid getting the disease is obviously nonsense, and it really is one of those things where it can't be true. You can't have it both ways. You can't tell people, well, the disease is spreading. There's new cases every single day. There's so many that we have to stay in lockdown. And then go around saying, but look, these policies of lockdown and cover your mouth with a mask and stay six feet away. These are helping prevent the spread. It's like, no, you either have the disease spreading or you don't have the disease spreading. It doesn't matter how much it spreads. This whole thing about flattening the curve is completely irrelevant. Because we already discussed the fact that the most people who get it don't have a dire case. They don't even know they're sick. So they're not going to run off to the hospital and crowd the hospital beds. That was a false narrative. It always has been and it always will be. But people are stupid. They don't want to use their brains and look at the advice that they're being given and say, hmm, I'm getting contradictory advice from the same people. Because then what they would have to acknowledge is that it's their responsibility to think for themselves in their life and not just trust some medical expert to tell them how to live. Because frankly, who cares if you get coronavirus? It only matters if you get coronavirus and then get severely ill, all right? And most people don't get severely ill. The mortality rate is well below 1%, especially in the United States. You have a few centers, New York, primarily, where there's, A relatively large caseload but even then it's still nothing compared to the flu but people are raising a panic so anyway people don't want to think for themselves when it comes to the medical side they have this religious voodoo tribal notion of how they can fight diseases which is what leads people to walk around wearing a face mask that is not the kind of face mask that is uh, medical grade and shown to actually prevent infection So it's a pointless mask to wear. They wear the mask only covering their mouth, for example, so that the front of the mask can serve as a uh, dish that collects anything that you come across in the air and serves it right up your nostril. Or you have people walking around with scarves and fabric things, bandanas, whatever over their face, like they're some kind of cowboy bandit. And then you get articles coming out from doctors saying, oh, by the way, if you do that, it just, uh, it allows moisture and germs to collect in the fabric and then it increases the chances of you getting sick. So you just have people following idiot tribal notions. And um, it gives a lot of them the license to be self-righteous and shame other people who don't feel like walking around with a stupid mask or a silly scarf over their face because we're not an idiot and we are fine taking responsibility for our own lives. So that's the first form of stupid, is medical uh, voodoo, all right? The second form of stupid is that people do not understand economics. We said this a billion times on the show, um, that economics is the discipline that if you bother to study it and learn how it works, you'll never, you'll never believe in dogmatic BS again, especially uh, the type that comes from the left. Because nothing from the left abides by the laws of economics and the laws of scarcity. So here's what they think. They think there's a magic disease that is going to get you. It's hunting you. It can smell the fear. Um, and and if you're not infected, it's coming for you. And then they think, well, anything is worth it. That's why uh, the... Or anything is worth it to prevent the spread. Which is why the governor or the mayor of New York, I think it was might have been the governor, who really cares, they're both idiots, came out and said, well, if we save even one life, it'll be worth it. And it's absolutely not true. Let's just play that out the way an economist would play it out. You tell me, um, hey, we anticipate that there's going to be a 100,000, um, very deadly cases of this disease. And on average, it costs $1,000 to, uh, Sorry, there's gonna there's gonna be a, a hundred really bad cases of this disease, all right? And on average, it's gonna cost a thousand dollars to treat those severe cases in our country. And then I would come back to you as somebody who is economically informed, and I would say, okay, so if we secured one hundred thousand dollars for you, and you could pinpoint those patients, then you would be able to fix this whole thing for $100,000. And a rational person would say, "Yes, that sounds about right to me." And now what if we made that arrangement and then a few weeks down the line you come back to me and you say, "Hey, um I had to I had to spend uh, what 19 trillion dollars in order to do this, but look, it's it's great because I saved one life." Well, I would come back, I would look at you and I would say, "Hmm, So what you could have done for $1,000, you achieved for $19 trillion. It's absolute lunacy. But people on the left, your idiot friends who are going around saying flatten the curve and safe at home or whatever, um, they hear that and they don't see anything wrong with it because they're stupid. They're economically illiterate. And that's the worst kind of stupid to be. So you have two kinds of stupid out there. You have the people that are medically stupid, they have a tribal fear of diseases, as if getting sick is somehow the worst thing that could ever happen to you, even though if you're a person who's in your 20s or 30s, even 40s, you have essentially zero chance of dying from this, you are going to have a cough, like a cold, and you'll get over it in a week or two, and then you'll move on with your life. Uh, You don't freak out over the normal flu, which has killed like 60,000 people this year, this year, and we're all shitting ourselves over over a, a minor backwater disease from China, whatever. And the second kind of stupid is that people don't understand economics in any manner, so they're willing to sacrifice the livelihoods of every single person at untold cost with unknown ramifications in terms of how long it will last and all of that in order to save even just one life. It's absolute nonsense. It's hard to deal with these people. It's hard to even be in a world with those people or to, see you know, the kind of people you see them comment on your Facebook posts and things like that all the time. And they shame you because you say something like, I'd rather just get this disease and go back to work after sick leave is over. Um, and then they want to get on your case about it. It's complete nonsense, and you know they're out there. And uh, my recommendation is you just give those people the finger, and you say, you know what, you're not worth my time. You're a fool, and I'll see you in 30 years when you may potentially have wised up, and you can look back on your own life and be like, oh, man, I was really stupid back then, wasn't I? I'll just be here, sitting pretty, thinking critically like I always have. Um But yeah, those are the two kinds of stupid that we're dealing with right now in this situation. So let's talk about the, uh, speaking of economics, why don't we just jump on to the economic uh, history? You know, everyone comes out there and they say, oh, you got to look back on your history and learn from it. Fine. Let's talk about that history. Since in Erica's article, she compared this to the Great Depression and the Great Recession, Uh, Why don't we just look at what exactly caused those things? So let's take it back to the Great Depression. If anyone has taken some time to study the work of Milton Friedman, or if you've read his book, A Monetary History of the United States, which is not an easy book, it requires a lot of historical background to really even follow it. Then you'll have read this, read or watched him discuss this interesting period of the lead up to the Great Depression, which for me, I really enjoy it because you just talk to people all the time. What do you guys think you know about the Great Depression? Give it a moment's thought, and I bet this is what you've heard. The Great Depression is when it showed that capitalism, um, the limits of capitalism failed and it proved that the government needs to take a role in the economy in order to smooth out the... um, the peaks and troughs of economic activity and to uh, make sure that people have a safety net so that their jobs are not ruined. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. But if you bother to study Milton Friedman's work, he thoroughly disproves that concept. So here's what really happened with the Great Depression in short. Um, In 1929, there was a decline in the amount of money in the United States by one third, which is ludicrous. And really quick drop and what ended up happening was that there was a run on the banks in uh, New York and the banks basically over the course of two or three days they managed to stem the run which means that uh, on the first basically when people started realizing oh my god there there's um, we're going into a recession uh, I need to withdraw my money from the bank so that I'll have cash on hand in case the banks end up shutting down and I, and I lose my money. So all of a sudden, everyone starts running to the bank at the same time. And since banks don't keep all your money sitting in a vault like they show in a cartoon, uh, the money is constantly in circulation. This causes a big problem and actually leads to banks having to close. And uh, that can get out of control and spiral into a really bad recession. So the most contemporary example that is that is related to this is the people losing their minds and then doing a run on the grocery stores which I don't know for those of you guys who didn't go out while the grocery store run was happening but holy cow that was the most ridiculous thing you ever saw uh, like the shelves were 100 percent empty and only just today I went to the store and finally they had toilet paper back in stock on the shelf which was that's, that's mind blowing in the United States. The idea that a store would, a, a large chain grocery store would be out of toilet paper and paper towels for like two or three weeks. Holy moly. It's outlandish. It's surreal. But anyway, for those of you guys who were out trying to get your groceries when all that was going on, that's what happened in 1929. Only it happened to the banks and people were trying to get their money. So bank managers did something really, really smart, which was on the very first day of the run, they said, okay, um, we gotta make sure everyone feels confident they're gonna get their money. So here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna, uh, there's there's nothing you do here. They told all the bank tellers at the windows, okay? There's no way that you're gonna keep there from being a line, there's lines out the door. So this is what you're gonna do. You're gonna assure every person that they're gonna get their money. And they called up, the banks called up the Federal Reserve and got their reserve deposits brought into the building. And they took these bags up and they literally had bank managers go up on tables in the middle of the lobby with this big ass bag of money that they just got from the armored car. They made a whole show out of it. And they were like, look at here, folks, look at all this money. You're going to all get the money you need. And there's more where that came from. And then they told the bank tellers, they said, okay, just make sure that you pay out the money to everybody. But since there's no way that you're going to get everyone in line, there's always going to be a line, there's no need to rush. So you should pay out their money in small bills and you should count it twice. You should double check it. You should make sure they sign and dot the line on everything. Even if you know the person really well, they come into the bank all the time. You don't need an ID check. Go run the ID check, blah, 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 blah. Okay? And so they do that. And then on the first, so that was the first day, but that was on a Friday. And so then they knew on a Saturday it was gonna be different because a lot of people were at work, heard about the run on the banks, and then there was gonna be a second one on Saturday. And that was the big problem. Because on Saturday they had to do something different and change up the psychology of it. So here's what they did. They first called up other banks and they said, look, if you guys are low on cash, um it, the banks that were flush with money they called up the banks that were short on cash and they said look we'll make you temporary loans because we can't have any banks close while this is happening because it will cause a, a domino effect and they all made that arrangement and then they told their cashiers they said look you're going to not let a line form okay we're ready for it today don't let a line form you're going to pay out the money as fast as possible and basically by like halfway through the day Everyone realized that there was no need to rush because every person who went to the bank was like, oh, no, I got my money. There was no problem there. It's all good. And they killed the run on the banks. And that was the end of what ended up becoming the Great Depression. And the reason why that was the end is because the private market is super flexible. Private banks are able to make those fast thinking decisions and partner with each other in order to make sure that everyone who wants their money on a sudden basis gets their money. And that's exactly what you saw happen with the grocery stores during this coronavirus thing was that for the first day, the grocery stores had to scramble. And then they really quickly jumped in and said, Okay, we've got to adjust our policies. So grocery stores changed up their hours so that they opened later and they closed sooner. And they Started inducing a line at the store so that only a certain number of people could come in at a given amount of time And you could only buy you know one item a piece of high-demand items all these things that if the government told you to do it It would be arbitrary and it would be a problem But private companies know their balance sheets and they know that okay in order to stay in business we need to impose these short-term restrictions and we can afford to do it and they they only do it to the extent that they don't start losing customers as a result so they did that and you'll notice that life at the grocery stores has otherwise gone back to normal well that's what happened in the great depression except for 6 months later the federal reserve finally kicked in and flooded the economy with cash in order to make up for that initial decline in money. And what this caused was an inflationary crash in the currency. And then that was followed by the, uh, the uh, New Deal policies in order to uh, additionally help people who had been hurt by the short recession that happened in 1929. And that kicked off a decade of depression. So what was the real cause of the Great Depression? It was government policies that responded stupidly and slowly to a, uh, basically a freak event that the private market handled within days. Because by the time that the government had kicked back in, the economy had recovered. So it, it was literally one of those things where it was like, hey, we don't need you here. And then the heavy foot of government just stomped down. The Great Recession is a similar story, okay? This one gets painted very differently, but a really good book about it is a book called The Big Short, Um, and that book features a guy named Michael Burry, and he's one of the few people who actually saw what was going to happen in the economy since he read. uh, he's a guy who's got Asperger's Syndrome, and the thing that he gets a kick out of, apparently, according to the book is reading the prospectuses on mortgage bonds. And he basically realized that all these mortgages were out in the uh, housing economy with floating interest rates that were all gonna spike from 2% to 15% in a two year period. And he deduced that, well, there's so many of these and they're so prevalent around the country that it's gonna lead to a housing crash in roughly two years. And he was totally right. But the question is, um, oh, and and by the way, Michael Burry right now has been all up on Twitter saying we have to end the lockdown and get the economy moving again. And we'll come back around to this in a couple of minutes here. But um, the dude that bothered to do his homework in one recession, maybe we should consider what he has to say with this looming recession that we're looking at right now. But back to the 2008 crash. There, uh, the reason that the 2008 crash happened is because there was a bill called the Dodd-Frank Bill, and that bill told banks that they had to essentially enact affirmative action policies when it came to approving home loans, um, because what idiot politicians noticed was that uh, black and Hispanic Applicants for home loans tended to be turned down more often than white and Asian applicants for home loans. And the reason for that is obvious because if anyone has bothered to study the demographics of the United States, you'll notice that uh, a larger proportion of people who live uh, in the lower income brackets are black and Hispanic than are white and Asian. And if you looked at the data on loan applications to banks you'll notice that the real correlation uh, between people who were approved and denied had nothing to do with their skin tone it had to do with whether they were in the low income bracket or if they were in the middle or upper income brackets people in the lower brackets didn't have the collateral to get a loan approval from a bank so they were denied and those people were predominantly black and hispanic however if you were in a middle income bracket with assets to your name And income that would justify a loan and you were black and Hispanic then you were approved but that didn't matter to the the, uh, senators and the congressmen who proposed and passed the Dodd-Frank Act what that ended up doing was it meant that banks were required to approve loans to high-risk applicants so what was created as a result of that was a thing called the subprime loan which was a loan that had a low interest rate called, a, it's called a floating interest rate at a low interest rate of 2%. And that interest rate would hold for about two or three years, depending on the loan or depending on the mortgage purchased. And then after that, it would jump up to 15% because the banks realize is that, well, if we have to approve these loans because we've got this Dodd-Frank Act, then we can't just give out loans to people who are gonna default immediately because they can't afford a 15% interest rate. So they created a package that would allow them to abide by this arbitrary law. And as people are inclined to do just by nature, it kicked the problem down the road a couple of years. And that's where people like Michael Burry noticed and he realized, well, that's gonna to lead to a recession in a couple of years. And sure enough, it did. A few years down the line from that, all of these uh, loans had been packaged up into bonds called collateralized debt obligations. And since those bonds were packaged with, say, a handful of mortgages from Florida and a handful from Oregon and a handful from Missouri and blah, 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 you basically had set up this structure where the entire housing market was interrelated. And as soon as the market started to crash in one part of the country, it started to drag down the market across the entire country. And so you, you saw the 2007, 2008 housing crash happen. It's all really simple to see how these things occur. And uh, people like Obama come out and they blame this on the private market and on speculative lending and on uh, Wall Street, blah, 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 it's nonsense. It was the government's fault. The government implemented a policy that forced banks to do something that was fiscally irresponsible and you got a fiscally irresponsible result at the end of it. Um, and then you got all the bailouts, and you got the Obama stimulus package tacked on to the end of that, which caused a prolonged inflationary recession. Because what do you get when you have a large uh, influx of money into the economy? First, you get an inflationary bubble, because it's easy money. Everyone is like, sweet, I've got all this money, I can spend it, I can invest it in this, I can do da." da, da. But then over about between six months and like a two year period, then the value of money declines, all of a sudden prices adjust to reflect the new reality that there's more money, so everything costs more, and you go into a recession. And you have to go through that recession in order for you to get back to an economic equilibrium. And the recession is the part where people lose all their jobs and income uh, goes flat and opportunities are decreased, and everyone gets unhappy and starts to blame the market, but it's caused by government. So that brings us back to the discussion about the coronavirus um, lockdown. Does anyone in their right mind actually think that had we just treated the coronavirus like we treated every other stupid disease that comes out of China that is a non-threat to people who uh, you know, live in a first world country with a good medical system, healthy diets and um, access to um, to uh, prescriptive medicine and the like. Does anyone actually think if we had treated this disease the same as we treated SARS or the bird flu or the swine flu or the, the whatever flu, Pick your pick your animal, there's been at least one per year for the past decade, that it would have caused a problem? If you're a reasonable person, you really can't say that uh, that uh, there would have been an issue if we had simply said, "Oh, look, another disease from China, not that big of a deal." So at the end of the day, it doesn't it doesn't cause any problems for 99% of people who catch it, and it's less deadly than the flu. Uh, an interesting thing, but well, we'll come back. Whatever, I won't even talk about that. It's less deadly than the flu. Okay, but what is dangerous is the lockdown. The lockdown is the equivalent to the New Deal and the Fed action in 1929. It's the equivalent to the Dodd-Frank Act and the stimulus uh, Obama stimulus package of 2007-2008. Because the lockdown, you've just told all these people, 99% of whom are at zero risk to this disease, that they cannot go out and live their life um, and earn their living. So of course you're going to have a recession if this continues. It's absolutely ridiculous. And what's going to end up coming out of this when we get through it, I don't know how long it's going to last. Honestly, it depends on how long lasting and overreaching the policies are that get implemented here. So far, they're pretty crazy. I mean, you've got people like Mayor Garcetti in Los Angeles telling people that you can't go to a business or outside if you don't wear a face mask, and encouraging neighbors to snitch on each other. I mean, he literally said, oh, you know the old phrase about snitches get, well, you know, in this case, snitches get rewards. What is this the government encouraging neighbors to start spying on each other when it comes to the mundane acts of their life? I posted about this on Facebook, and I got this asinine dullard responding like, oh, so I see you think that... um, That uh, people shouldn't report domestic abuse or crimes if it happens at their neighbor's house. And it's like, yeah, of course I think you should call the police if you see a crime. I don't think you should call the police if you think that your neighbor went outside without wearing his PVC face mask, idiot. I mean, does does it even warrant responding? I guess it does because so many people have said idiotic things like that in the past month. Um... As I said, you're finding out how many people are stupid. But okay, so we can expect that the government actions here are going to have drastic economic impacts they are going to last a long time. And come down the road, within within a year, people are going to be blaming the free market in some manner for this. They're going to say that without the government's swift actions at the state, local, and federal level... It would have been a massive crisis that millions would have died. There'll be a whole narrative spun on this, and it's going to be all total nonsense. The fact of the matter is that had we left this alone, you would have seen probably fewer deaths than we're seeing right now since there's so many uh, external costs of the type of weird authoritarian medical activities that are going on at the moment and uh, the misreporting by assigning everything to COVID-19, you probably would have seen fewer deaths than what we're already seeing officially had we just left it alone. So the policies are counterproductive and they're going to have long-term negative effects. Uh, Okay, so final point here is I want to talk about experts. Because this is one of the things that also you've probably had idiot people tell you Um, And and it's like this rhetorical point that somehow you can't respond to. They say, well, we need to trust the medical experts. They know what they're talking about. And it's like, yeah, you're right. When Dr. Fauci gets up on TV or any other medical person gets up on TV and starts talking about uh, preventative methods to avoid getting yourself or getting other people sick. Yeah, they know what they're talking about. I totally believe that if I avoid spitting in another person's face or slobbering on my hand and then rubbing it on their cheek that we can reduce the likelihood of passing a disease between the two of us, all right? When <laughs> it's almost it's almost like comical to think that we needed to find a medical expert to come out on national TV and tell us all to wash our hands and cover our mouths when we sneeze and, you know, don't spit on public surfaces and things like that. I mean, like, it's comical. Seriously, this guy went. How many years did this guy go to medical school so that he could come out and give us this brilliant advice? Please. Um, but yeah, if my, if I went into the doctor one on one and the doctor diagnosed me with, with, uh, coronavirus and he said, look, uh, you got coronavirus and, um, here's what you need to do, here's my diagnosis, you gotta stay home for a couple weeks, you need to drink a lot of fluids, you need to have your chicken noodle soup, and I'm gonna prescribe this or that medicine. I would listen to him, I'd be like, okay, cool, thanks doc, I'll, I'll go do that, all right? And I'd follow the prescription, and if it worked, I'd be fine, and if it wasn't working that well, I would come back to see him in a week, because I don't know about the rest of you, but when you go to the doctor, they usually say, here's your prescription, um, we'll check back in in a couple of days see if it's working all right so it's one thing if a doctor prescribes you something in person their expert opinion matters then they've looked at you specifically they've diagnosed your specific problem and they've taken into account relative contextual details that you've provided to them about your life and your medical history and therefore the advice is actually useful it's informed when a doctor just gets up on tv and prescribes the entire nation their expertise is pretty much irrelevant because there's only going to be a minor element of it that actually applies across the board and it's never going to be enough to justify things like an entire societal lockdown. That's the first thing about experts, okay? The expert input is really only valuable in local contexts with a specific problem like an individual diagnosis, okay? The second thing is the medical experts aren't the only people who have a say in this stuff. If I go to an auto mechanic and I say, um, "Hey, auto mechanic, I need you to look at my car," and he looks at it and he, and then I come back and I'm like, "Okay, so what? What's your recommendation for my car?" and he says, "Okay, yeah, well, see, you've got a um, you've got a cracked pipe here." And you got a bad radiator and this spark plug is broken and they all need to be replaced. And also you need to quit your job and stay inside your house for six months. What, would you go stay inside your house for six months? Or would you be like, hmm, sounds like you know a lot about cars, but then you're stepping past your area of expertise when you tell me I've got to go stay in my house for six months and quit my job. Well, that's what I'm trying to say here medical experts can tell you only so much and their advice is only as good as it starts to bump into the relevant advice of other people who have expert opinions and that's why when someone like michael Burry is out there saying we have to restart this economy and every single economic expert and economist out there is like hey if we just lock down the society there's going to be an economic crash you can't just ignore that. You have to go balance that with the medical advice. And the, and the most balanced response is the common sense response, which we brought up on this show as soon as this quarantine junk started, which is that most everyone is not in danger from this disease. Therefore, they should not be forced to go home. If people are older and working and they feel like they're at risk, they can take voluntary action so if i'm someone who's you know in his in uh, his mid 50s and i'm like look i'm really worried i'm gonna get this coronavirus so i'm gonna take um, pto and i'm gonna just go home for a few weeks right out the storm okay then they can make those arrangements with their employers and maybe employers should be overly generous with things like that uh, to the extent that they think it's reasonable and That would be fine. But somebody who's in their mid-20s should not uh, be prevented from going to work because they they feel like they're fine and they're not at risk. That is their life. They can make those decisions. By the way, a person who's in their 60s in the at-risk group, they can make those decisions too. From what I've seen, nobody who's an old person out and about is that worried. I mean, I've talked to people at the grocery store, talked to people at the bank and i've talked to people pretty much everywhere i've gone and i've seen a lot of people that are at least in their 70s and they're not wearing masks and they're not afraid they actually kind of think it's comical because they've got life experience and with age comes a bit of wisdom and perspective and they realize that they don't need to freak out and um, lock themselves away so i don't think any of us should be doing this um And uh, we really need to have a balanced perspective when it comes to these things. We're trading a minor medical issue for a catastrophic economic issue. And the best thing we could do is start telling these politicians when they come out there with their arcane, draconian, uh, um, Stalinistic methods of stay inside, you're going to get a fine, or we're going to arrest you, you can't be in your car, you can't be on the street... Stay six feet apart, report your neighbors. We should give them the middle finger and we should go to work. Everyone needs to start doing this because these people are a joke. They don't run your lives. The American people run their own lives. And we have constitutional rights enshrined for a reason because the government is not allowed to overstep those things, no matter how many medical experts sign on because they're enjoying their 15 minutes of fame. Thank you guys. For listening to this episode of the True American Podcast, you can find us on Spotify under True American. You can also follow us on Facebook, and uh, you can catch us a bit on Instagram as well. If you appreciate these episodes and want them to keep on happening, then please like, comment, and share. Tell your friends about it. Uh, We need to pick up followers. This is big time. It's something we really enjoy doing, even though we lead super busy lives. And we really love interacting with you guys. We're so glad that you listen to the show. I hope you guys all get through this ridiculous lockdown and that uh, you're able to get back to your jobs and your regular lives. Make sure you call your family and your friends during this time because the most important thing is we all stay in touch with each other. And um, look, maybe you need to practice a little civil disobedience, man. Go out on a limb. Go to a grocery store without wearing a face mask. God forbid you uh, do something normal like that. But if you do nothing else, tune in and help us get these types of messages out there. See you next time.